0: Turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word this morning to two texts. First, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. When you find that, stick your finger there. And then turn with me back to the book of Ruth. This morning we continue uh, looking at the book of Ruth, where we take up the most exciting portion of the book, As we look at the lineage at the very end, that's right, a list of names, so exciting. Ruth chapter 4, I'm going to begin in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And if you would, now over to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of God, the son of Abraham. I'm sorry, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab. at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Aviud, and Aviud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathon, and Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to celebrate the amazing story of what you have been doing, not only in making grand promises from the beginning, but in accomplishing all of those promises in spite of the faithlessness and infidelity of your people. Help us, Lord, as we recount these things to do so, not in order to try to heap unnecessary guilt and shame upon ourselves, but instead to look to celebrate the Christ who has taken our guilt and shame upon himself, to free us from these things, and to raise us to new life. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, we have an awesome king who has come from a quite unseemly lineage. One of the most famous lines that, that we can think of here in, the, in Western uh, civilization is from a, a very famous play in a quite famous soliloquy, O oh Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if you will not Be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Tis but thy name is my enemy. Later she goes on to ask, what's in a name? She doesn't ask the question because she doesn't know the answer. She's already been rehearsing the answer. The issue is she doesn't like the answer and she is saddened by its implications. What's in a name? Well, what's what's in a list of names? Well, it's quite easy. A history. A history in which through the names of those who are part of this list bring with them all kinds of of actions and implications. What's the problem with with Romeo's name is, is that he is part of a family that is in a blood feud with Juliet's family. What's the name? The problem's not the name. The, the problem is the hate. The problem is the shed blood. The problem is the murderous intentions and desires. The, the problem is the conflict and the fight. The problem isn't just simply this arbitrary issue having to do with a name. It's the history in which that name embodies. And when we look at the Scripture, as we have been looking at the book of Ruth, Ruth comes to the end of this amazing story in order to give us the whole point of why the book of Ruth has been uh, uh, provided and, and has been procured for God's people through the ages. And that is in a list of names. A list of names that embody a history. Now did you notice as we read through Matthew chapter 1 that there was an entire section uh, within the uh, the first portion of the lineage in which it was almost a word for word repetition of what we read in the book of Ruth. The lineage of Jesus Christ, we are told, is separated into these these, uh, three different sets of 14. Now, it is not because there is only 14 generations within these different periods of the history of Israel. It is because these are the specific names that have been chosen to be included in order to show a very specific thing of of what God has been doing. There is a symmetry um, that we find there in the 14 names, two sets of seven. There is a symmetry that, that is underlying the construction and the formation of this genealogy, while the very content of the names show us chaos. And that's what has been an interplay not just within the lineage of Jesus, but in the very history of creation, in the very history of God's covenants with his people. The book of Ruth has shown us that hidden presence of God through the normal, everyday, mundane decisions and actions Attitudes, intentions, along with follow-through of normal, everyday folks who have been used by God to secure the line of Messiah, to secure the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, to secure the future and hope of God's eternal purposes. these things were all put in jeopardy. Because an Israelite man, rather than choosing to be faithful, to endure the discipline of God because of the sin of the people, instead chose to try to get around God's discipline. And he took his family out of the promised land, for them to try to find what only the promised land could actually promise and could actually provide. And he went looking for things in a foreign land amongst a foreign people. And the result is he died. And the result is his two sons died. And the result is there is a widow who has been left on her own, not because of her own sin, but because of the sins of her husband. You have a wife who is widowed, not because she has done something wrong, but the way that her husband participated in the sin of his father. Oh, wouldn't it be as easy as Juliet says, just deny your name, just deny your father, she says. The problem is the, the sins that, that make up all of these issues and the problems that we see within families and within the world, within individuals who are in the church and outside of the church, is because it is a sin problem that goes back to the very beginning. It is not as simple as simply denying one's name. One needs to receive a new name. And this is exactly what God provides Ruth through Boaz. As he provides her a husband. And in becoming married to this new husband, she receives a new name. She receives a restored inheritance. And she receives, more than that, the continuation of the lineage of her husband. By being uh, by giving birth to her child Obed and Naomi's husband his lineage is secured through the birth of this new baby Obed and the result is that the women celebrate God has been faithful and gracious to you and he has not left you without a redeemer because Obed is the redeemer Obed secures the lineage of your family, which means Obed secures the future and hope of your people. The land is secure. The promises are secure. But within the story of Israel, we know that whatever comes from within this, this new security of what God has done in securing the line of the seed and securing the line of of the king. What we know is because of the faithlessness of the church, the seed and the king would be jeopardized once again. You see, what we find in the history of the lineage, even right there in the book of Ruth, let alone the lineage that is found within uh, Matthew chapter 1 with Jesus Christ is that the people of God constantly and perpetually put God's promises at risk. What we have is a history of God's promises that are contrasted against the history of the church's presumption. At the time in which Jesus was born, the Pharisees were controlling the way things were happening within the land. And they were doing so, trying to constrict the people by being even more strict than what God had revealed because they were scared. And what were they scared of? They were scared that they were going to remain in exile forever. When you look at the lineage... The first 14 names show from Abraham to David. The next 14 names show from David to what? To the exile in Babylon. The next 14 names show the continued exile of God's people even though they're back in the promised land. And at the time in which Jesus was born, the the people of God were, yes, in this promised land, but they were under the throne, the, the thumb of Rome. And what they thought was if they could just white knuckle their way into some kind of obedience to a more earthly, a more doable set of commands then God would see their obedience and would respond to them and finally free them from exile from their enemies. Do you realize the presumption there? We'll change what God expects so that we can then meet those expectations which will cause God to bless us. A history of God's promises contrasted with a history of the church's presumption. We are the special people of God. We are special. We aren't supposed to be experiencing these things. Maybe the reason we're experiencing these things is, is because God is the one who's not being faithful. Maybe God is the one who is who is absent-minded. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he doesn't have the power to fulfill his promises. And the point is that they would point to anyone and everyone other than their own hearts. A presumption that they were special because they were of the lineage of Abraham. And therefore, because they were special, God was supposed to give them special things. The problem is they've got it inverted. Abraham was not special. He was common. He was just like every other Gentile because he was a Gentile. He wasn't special. He was a Gentile. And yet God in his grace chose Abraham, took him to himself, set his loyal love upon Abram, and then gave him covenant promises. Here's what I will do, and I will do these things because I am faithful to accomplish what I promise. Your job is to receive the promises by faith and to walk with me in repentance and faith all your day. You see the difference? The the church is special, not because of something within ourselves, and especially not because of our lineage. We are special because of God's love that he freely chose to set on us. This lineage also shows a history of God's protection contrasted with a history of the church's precarious recklessness. Well, if God has made the promises, and and if the promises are conditioned on His faithfulness, it doesn't matter how we respond. We can do whatever we want. I mean, look, we have the temple. Does anyone else have the temple of the Most High God? Does anyone else have the sacrifices? Does anyone else have the covenants? Does anyone else have God's Word inscripturated? Does anyone else have the Shekinah glory of God dwelling in their presence? No, we do. And we always will have this. So we can chase after this God, and we can participate with this nation in in their idolatry and their sins, and, and we can do whatever we want because we've got the temple, and surely God is going to protect his temple. And God did protect his temple by destroying it. And the result was because of the recklessness of God's people, God destroyed his temple and sent them away. How easy it is for us when we are presuming upon God to live with a precarious recklessness in which The promises of God and our enjoyment of them, we put at risk over and over and over and over. This is what Elimelech was doing in the book of Ruth. Presuming upon God and putting his enjoyment of the promises at risk. And time after time after time, God would have to save the lineage of Jesus. And notice within this lineage, we have multiple women who are listed. Multiple women. This is not something that, that would normally have happened in a genealogy at this time, and at and with at, at, in history, the women were often just completely neglected or ignored or left to the side. And yet, there are several women who are mentioned. All except for one are Gentile women, and all all of them used by God in surprising and scandalous ways to protect the lineage of the seed. Tamar, who had to trick Judah into fulfilling what he was supposed to do, which provided her a seed a seed that is part of Jesus' lineage. Without her taking those actions, we don't know what God would have done there. But God used the trickery, and trickery not because she was a bad person and not because she you know, was a woman and had to trick things. It's because of the men who were refusing to be faithful to their responsibilities of the covenant. And so God saved the lineage of his son through, through Tamar and her actions. God saved the lineage of his son through Ruth and her actions. And by the way, did you notice who Ruth was married to? Boaz. And who did Boaz come from? Rahab. Once again, a surprising and scandalous Servant of God to accomplish purposes that the men and leadership were not accomplishing because of their lack of faith. And so she had to hide the spies um, uh, in, in order to protect them. And she was the one that had the faith to say, we've heard about what Yahweh is doing for you and we're shaking in our boots. And what did the leadership say? Well, we went over there and there's a bunch of Shaquille O'Neal's running around over there and we're scared of them. She had the faith to grasp hold of the victory of Yahweh as God's people were afraid in their boots at humans that God had created. She had the faith to see what could not be seen right in front of her, to grasp hold of that which only faith could grasp hold of. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, the one whom David, the great king, took to himself by taking her away from her husband, killing her husband. And yet God, even through that surprise and scandal, brought forth Solomon, the greatest of David's earthly sons, who would lead to the birth of David's greatest son, Jesus Christ. By the way, all four of these women are Gentile women. A Canaanite, a Moabite, or two Canaanites, a Moabite and a Hittite. The lineage of Jesus is filled with with all kinds of chaos and issues. Details from one part of the lineage to the next, to the next, to the next. What has ordered it is God's sovereign care and providence. And his use of surprise and scandal. Which leads us to the last woman, by the way. The last woman who is Mary. You talk about surprise and scandal. Hey, a virgin's pregnant. That doesn't happen every day. It was such a surprise and a scandal to Joseph that he was going to get out of the marriage that he was going to get out of the engagement. God has been using surprise and scandal throughout the history of his covenant faithfulness because this is what he has chosen to do in order to help us protect ourselves against thinking that we are somehow inherently special unto ourselves and because we're special he owes us something and instead to call us over and over and over again to see that he is the one that is special and what we have that is special is the fact that he has set his love on us so that we would respond to his love in loving him and learning to disconnect ourselves from every other lover. And so this history of this lineage is certainly a history of God's promises contrasted with the church's presumption, a history of God's protection contrasted with a history of the church's precarious recklessness. It is a history of God's faithfulness contrasted with the church's infidelity. And what is made very clear in this lineage is that if God is going to preserve his covenant promises it's going to be on account of it's not going to be on account of his people's loyal love it is going to be in spite of his people's incessant infidelity if god is going to preserve his royal line it's not going to be on account of his people's righteousness it's going to be in spite of his people's sinfulness God is utterly and completely faithful in the face of our presumption, our recklessness, and infidelity. Because everything that he is doing is an expression of his heart, his desires, what he wants, and what he has chosen to set his affections on is saving a reckless, presumptive, unfaithful people in order to make them his people, in order to take a sinful people and make them righteous, in order to take a faithless people and to make us faithful. He has set his love on us and his blessings come to us not because of anything inherent within us, but because of everything that is inherent within us, renders us incapable of even receiving his promises without his help. And so, beloved, this morning as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we are doing so in the rehearsal of a list of names Because this list of names is a history of our failures. It is a history of our unworthiness. And it is a history of his heart, his desires, and his ability to overcome anything and everything that stands in his way. And so, beloved, this Christmas, take your eyes off of yourself and affix them once again to Jesus Christ. Some of you are tempted to keep your eyes on yourself, thinking that God receiving God's blessing in, in your life and in your family and in this church is contingent upon you, perfectly following him. Beloved, you can't. He knows that. He gives you Christ. So get your eyes off of yourself and get them onto him. Some of you think, that the lack of blessing uh, in your life, the lack of blessing in your family, the lack of blessing in the church, you, you think that that's the result of you being too sinful. Beloved, get your eyes off of yourself. If there's anything this lineage shows us is that God uses utter and complete sinfulness and wickedness to accomplish his purposes. And he does so because he knows we can't do it. And his fatherly love for us is in the midst of our inabilities. And so whether your pride is on yourself because you think you can somehow uh, add to what Jesus has done, or if your pride is set on yourself because you think you're able to detract from what Jesus has done, get your eyes off of you. And as this day, as there is this exchanging of gifts, this, 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 this wonderful, the decorations of the trees and the lights and the wreaths and the smell of food, beloved, in these gifts, in these trees, in these lights, in this food today are concrete expressions of God's heart And concrete reminders of the only way for us to benefit from his heart. And that is simply to put our hands out and to receive and to rest upon Jesus Christ, made flesh, perfect living, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us today, as there are all these concrete reminders of good things. Help us remember that these good things come from your hand, and that they are conduits by which we not only enjoy the thing itself, but through the enjoyment of the thing, we also enjoy you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will use the gifts and the food and the hugs and the kisses, the sharing of glad tidings this Christmas day. Use these things to help us set our hearts on you to get our focus off of ourselves, whether that be amongst your people or whether it be those who are still lost in the darkness and who need the light of Jesus Christ. Help us indeed, O Heavenly Father, be refractions of that light today and every day henceforth. It is in Jesus' name that we pray.